Romans 1, and we'll read through 1 through 7, and we're going to look at the gospel of God. We're entering into the letter now, and we're going to look at the gospel of God and the subtitle of this, because we're going to focus primarily on verse 2 this morning, and it's the promise, the promise before, through his prophets. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith, or the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would bless, you would bless the reading and our hearing of your word. We pray that you would bless with spirit power the proclamation of your word. Be with me as I speak and each of us as we listen. Anoint our minds that we may comprehend and understand. And may your spirit work in our hearts to receive your truth to rejoice in the wonderful truth and the depths of the gospel. And so strengthen your people and come near to those who do not know Christ savingly. And we pray for new birth and life by the power of the gospel. We ask this, Father, in Christ's powerful and blessed name. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning we return to Paul's letter to the Romans these initial, actually, these initial 17 verses here in chapter 1, they, they, are, they serve as a, a, a salutation, an introduction, and a greeting by the apostle to the church at Rome. And the first seven verses of this section plunge us right into the primary theme of the letter, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to say this morning, as we hear of conflict in the world, remember that these things, wars and the rumors of wars, and the threat that comes upon us, not only in the world, but as the people of God, are normative for this entire age, according to the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. These are the normative expectations, pressure, persecution, trials that will come upon us. And many, I find many people, especially young families, they are struggling and wrestling what to do as they see Western civilization implode in on itself where there's no moorings of morality and grounding to stand. And they worry about their children and us that are even older. We worry about our grandchildren. But let me remind you, let me remind you that the Apostle Paul writes his letters, and this initial letter, Rome, the beginning of the general epistles in the New Testament, there's a reason why it's the first one, because here we have truth, truth, and the gospel unfolded through this letter that serves as the entry into the New Testament, especially the general epistles, the reason why it seems to be placed there. But this letter and this truth when we think of the early church under the weight of Jewish persecution and Gentile and Roman persecution and how they lived for centuries, what you will find in God's word is a sufficient and sure word and a place of stability for the heart and a place to trust in timing and trying times. And it is that place of rest which is found in Christ and in the gospel. I promise you, it holds it will hold during the most trying times of life. 
This is the word. This is the word that we need. And the words that we're going to be hearing and hearing of, of, the, of the stability of God's word and the trustworthiness of God's word this morning for our hearts, the hearts of our children, our grandchildren, and making sure that we as a congregation for the next generation are establishing a sure foundation of God's word in the life of this church that each generation hears the word of God and has this place of stability of the word of God and will flee to Christ. Again, these first seven verses, they plunge us right into the primary theme of the letter, which is the gospel itself. It is this, what Paul said he preached, Christ and Christ crucified. It's this gospel. Notice verse 15, Romans 1, verse 15. Some see verses 15 through 17 as almost like a thesis statement for the rest of the letter. Look at verse 15, Romans 1, verse 15. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's these opening verses and the first 17 verses that we should understand. They serve as a foundation for the rest of the letter. And the rest of the letter will stand and rest upon this truth of Christ. Whether Paul is speaking of our guilt and sin and our great need of the gospel, his explanation of the gospel and the atoning death of Christ, whether he will speak of not only justification or how God is working in those that have embraced the gospel and how God is renewing us in this work of sanctification or even, even that day when we shall be delivered, that day when Christ returns, that day when all of the universe will be renewed and there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which he calls glorification. You see, now, the trying times that we live in, this is not the age of glory. That is later. The word of God and the church has historically understood that we as the people of God, we are a people of the cross. Our theology is of the cross. And it's during this timing time, this trying time, that we find ourselves today, and Paul did in his day. Not a theology of glory. Not a theology that we often hear in the pulpits of our day, which are a theology of triumph and glory. That's not biblical Christianity. We live as exiles. We live as sojourners upon the earth. We live as the people of God whose citizenship is in heaven. But what we are seeing here as we begin to unpack these verses, this is foundational for our faith as God's people. Now, as a way of reminder... In verse 1, you remember, the, uh, weeks back, we saw in verse 1, Paul gave us, opening the letter, establishing authority and setting forth who he was. He had not been to Rome, but he was hoping to pass through Rome on the way to uh, Spain. And so Paul gives us his identity. He gives us a word about his mission. You remember verse 1? Paul, a bondservant. Paul, a slave, if you're a member of Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Here, Paul identifies himself and Paul identifies his God-given mission. Weeks ago, we observed that Paul also known by his Hebrew name, Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a, you remember, a fierce persecutor of the Christian church. In fact, again and again, we find in the New Testament, Paul is very clear that he tried to destroy the church. 
However, in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, chapter 9, especially chapter 9, we saw that Christ, that Christ came to Paul. Paul was set apart in his mother's womb. And Christ, like Scotland Yard, gets his man in the end. And he came. He came to Paul. He came to Paul who was in Saul. And, and, and in sovereign grace, and in sovereign grace, he came to Saul. And in an invasion of grace, he came. And Saul was converted. And Saul became a Christian, a believer. And this Saul... And this Saul, the persecutor, would now become the Apostle Paul, the great preacher of the Christian faith. Now, Paul's conversion uh, was, would have probably been in the 30s of the first century, somewhere within seven to ten years after the death of Christ. And now we have, if that was in the 30s, 30s AD, we now have Paul writing as one sent, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to the Roman congregation from Corinth. We believe he has just finished his third missionary journey. He's in Corinth for the winter. He's with Gaius. You, you see this at the end of the book. He's with Gaius. And it's probably winter between 54, 57 AD that now he's writing as an apostle. Now notice verse 1. And again, quickly remind ourselves in a way of review of how Paul identified himself in his God-given mission. One, Paul, remember, in verse 1, Paul, he was a bondservant or a slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. And we see that this bending of the knee to Christ, crying out to Christ as Lord, we find this especially in Acts chapter 9. Secondly, Paul is called, he's called by Christ to be an apostle. An apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one, what that word actually means, a, an apostle, a sent one. They were unique to the New Testament era. They were personally called by Christ. There were actually signs of the apostles that you find uh, that they, they are spoken about in 2 Corinthians, but you see them in the book of Acts and signs and miracles. There's no apostles today, but these were foundation layers for the church. Ephesians 2.20. That we see that he's called to be an apostle, sent one. And we have, we have the, the beginnings of a hint of this, again, in Acts chapter 9, Acts 9, verse 15. Verse 15. And thirdly, we see here in verse 1, he's separated to the gospel of God. This apostle and then being separated to the gospel of God, they're, they're together, they're linked together but it's this separation to the gospel. Again, you'll find this in Acts 9, Acts 9, verse 15, and also verse 20. Acts 9, verse 20. But all of these, all of these things, Paul is a slave of Christ. Paul, an apostle, sent one of Jesus Christ. Paul, separated to the gospel of God. All of these identities of Paul, they speak of two primary things that should catch our attention. One, they speak of the grace of God in Paul's life and conversion. His conversion and calling were a, let's be crystal clear about this, so that we understand when we speak of God's calling and salvation that came to Paul and that we who are believers in Christ, what we have experienced in the sense of the grace of God, that his conversion and calling were a gracious action of God toward Paul. Paul did not convert himself. Paul did not call himself. It was a sovereign action on God's part, a gracious action of God. It was the unmerited favor of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God that came to Paul and converted him and brought him to Christ. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, we hear Paul use this language of the grace of God and all of this aspect of this mission and calling in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, listen to this, verse 9, 
Paul said, for I am least. I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And so, all of these, the the words that are found here, bondservant, apostle, separated to the gospel, they all emphasize and put a point that they speak of the grace of God and Paul's calling and conversion. And secondly, they, they also, as we pointed out, they speak of mission, of, of Paul's God-called mission. Again, as a servant or slave, as an apostle, as one that is separated. He's sent to this gospel mission. Notice that language. And he is separated, verse 1, unto the gospel of God. Paul, like the prophets of old, he was separated even from his mother's womb for the mission. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Paul did not, again, he did not thrust himself into this position. No, he was, he was separated by God to this work. And like the priests and the Levites and the Old Testament who were separated to the work of ministry among the people of God, so was Paul. And as a Pharisee, because this word separated is a play on words. The idea of the Pharisee is one who is separated to the law. Now Paul, as a Pharisee, Saul was separated to the law. But now, now Paul, the apostle, is separated to the gospel of grace. Now, listen closely. We're finally wrapping up verse 1. Paul understood through the truth of God. Listen to me, Christian. He understood by the revelation of God, the truth of God, what was his identity and his mission. He understood That's why he labors all the more. He's a man. He's a man that's on a mission. If you read the book of Acts, or if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible that has maps in the back of it, look at the missionary journeys of Paul. He is a man on a mission. He understood his mission and his identity. He understood and had a grasp of God's call upon his life. And I want to ask each of us this morning, as we wrap up verse 1, not only do we see the authority of this letter that we're about to receive is by one that has come to us by an apostle of Jesus Christ, one sent by Christ. And as he speaks as an ambassador, Christ speaks to us through this letter. But do we understand? Have we come to the place in our life where we understand God's action, where he had come to us, through the gospel, where he brought saving grace into your life and saved you, where he turned you away from condemnation and death and turned you and your your future to a life in Christ and eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Do you understand that, that this was an action on God's part in your life? Do you know who you are in Christ? Have you spent time deeply considering how the New Testament speaks of Christians and our identity in Christ? Have you come to a place 
in your life as you've let that settle firmly in your minds and you've become resolute in will and in your soul. I'm a slave of Christ. I identify with the apostle. I bend the knee to Christ my Lord. As we have mentioned, His Word is over me as a word from my Master. Are you a slave of Christ above all else? And while our callings and vocations and life may differ, there is that, that heavenly, that Christian calling from God to salvation in life of embracing the gospel. And then even at that, while we are in the life of the church, the community of God's people and family, even within that as Christians and as the family of God, and while our giftings, our giftings from God and callings in the life of the local church may differ to some measure, on another level, we have all, each of us, are not only servants of Christ, but we have all been separated unto the gospel. And what I mean by that is that we are now a people that our lives are dedicated to the advancement of the gospel among the nations. You may be a Sunday school teacher. You may be catechizing children. You may be praying on a regular basis for this church in the advancement of the gospel for the churches upon the earth that the gospel would penetrate those dark places and those people groups that by your giving, by your prayers, and by your actions in the life of the church and then out into the world, in your home, in the workplace, in school, that you've been separated unto the gospel and as a servant of Christ, you are dedicated to its advancement. Have you considered that? I challenge you this morning. I challenge you this morning to reflect on your mission, your mission within this church and out in the world, in your home and in the world, and for you to reflect and seriously begin to comprehend who you are in Christ, your identity in Christ, so that the world may ask, who are you? And your response is Christian. Christian. And ask yourself not only who you are, but I want you to ask yourself why are you here in this place? Why did God bring you here? Why does He have you here at Covenant? I want you to consider that when you consider your service and mission and identity. Why are you here in this congregation? All right, I need to move on. That was verse 1, Paul's identity and mission and how we should identify it with it and, and consider ourselves in light of Paul's calling. Number 2, Number two. The second thing that we see here, it actually begins in verse two. It's two through four. It's verses two through four. Watch this. In verses two through four, now we see the gospel foretold and fulfilled. You see, as Paul established his authority as one that was set apart by God, as one sent by Christ as an apostle, and that his words that he speaks and that he writes is authoritative, he also wants us to understand that this is not something novel that he came up with. What he is writing about to them, that is the gospel, was rooted in the Old Testament scripture. It's found in your Bibles from long ago. He wants us to see that the gospel was foretold and we will see, starting next week, how it is fulfilled, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. This gospel which Paul was separated says, which, verse 2, he promised God, God promised before through his prophets 
in the Holy Scriptures, and if you slide into verse 3, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, the gospel foretold and and fulfilled. That's what we have here. In verse 2, Paul reminds us that the gospel is not a New Testament afterthought. But a truth, a truth that's embedded in the fabric of history. Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose from the dead, Christ ascended. It's embedded in history, an objective reality of history, but it was also foretold. It was foretold or promised before through the prophets. Do you see that? The gospel was not novel, but was rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel that Paul preached was promised. Look at the wording there in verse 2. Promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is, the gospel was foretold. It was predicted or anticipated. Anticipated by the Old Testament Scriptures. And at the center of it, you see this in verse 3. It's concerning Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's this gospel foretold, promised before, through the prophets, and Jesus Christ is at the center. He's at the center. It is Christ who fulfills the promises that they long for from long ago. And again, please understand that when I say When Paul writes concerning the promises before, when I say fulfill the promises, I'm speaking of the old covenant promises. This truth is essential. It's essential for reading your Bible correctly. The Old Testament anticipated the gospel and Jesus Christ coming. Listen, one of the the benefits of a regular diet of expository preaching is that as a congregation, we are learning to read our Bibles properly. And if we forget, week after week, we are learning to read our Bibles properly. Meaning of words, context, context within a passage, within a letter, within a section of the New Testament, within the New Testament, within the Bible as a whole. We're learning to read our Bibles. Now again, when we speak of this gospel that was promised from long ago, the gospel is, it wasn't a figment of Paul's imagination. The gospel is an, is an objective fact of history. And the gospel is something that God accomplished through His Son. The gospel was promised before through the Old Testament promise of prophets. It was promised by God. And it is the gracious, gracious promise that would come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This promise... This language of Paul, promised before through the prophets, was as far back as Moses when he wrote the Torah, when he wrote Genesis. It's as far back as that first gospel. You remember the first gospel, which is found where? Genesis 3, verse 15, right? In Genesis 3, 15, we hear of the seed, the seed of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent and conquer sin and death. There's the first gospel. But then listen to the language of the Bible in other places. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Listen to this. For I delivered to you, this is Paul again, first of all, that which I also received That Christ died for our sins. And then he says what? According to what? 
according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? The Old Testament scriptures. Paul believes that the death of Christ, a suffering Messiah, dying for our sins, is grounded in the Old Testament. Peter would write this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. He says, of this salvation, of this salvation, the prophets, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Speaking of the Old Testament prophets. And then Peter says, searching what, uh, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would come. You say, where's that in the Old Testament? It's all over the place. All through the Psalms. Read like Psalm 22. Read the prophets. Read when Isaiah would write. Listen to this. Isaiah 53 verse 5. Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he, who's he? Who's he? It's Christ, the suffering servant, the Messiah. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6 all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, it's the name of God. And the Lord has laid on him. On who? Who's on him? Jesus. This is the one that, that John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away what? Sin of the world. And here we find Isaiah saying, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Paul says in verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the scripture concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament scriptures are teaching us by telling us things like this. They're teaching us how to read the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ was anticipated in the Old Testament through prophecies, through patterns, through types. And when you have opportunity, read words from our, from our, our very Lord's mouth. And look, for instance, like in Luke chapter 24, Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. It's, this is how, again, in the book of Acts, Actually, Jesus even did it in the Gospels. He would be in the synagogue and they're reading scripture and Jesus would say, and this is being fulfilled before you. Or when Paul would reason in the book of Acts with the Jews in the synagogues as they read the Old Testament scriptures and it says that he would preach Christ and the gospel. For instance, Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. As soon as Paul was converted, everything theologically, as he understood the Old Testament, flipped. And he saw Jesus and all those passages. And it said in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, immediately he preached, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And Acts chapter 18, and Acts 18, verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. He was, as they would read the Old Testament scriptures, and someone would say, does anyone have a word from God concerning this? And you can imagine Paul. Well, by the way, I do. And he'd make a beeline right to Jesus. And next, but it says there in verse 2, notice that this gospel, watch this, foretold by the Old Testament scriptures, it's fulfilled. That which was foretold is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, 
chapter 1, Romans, verse 3, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared, verse 4, to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness and by the resurrection of the dead. It was foretold from long ago. It had now come to realization in the life and ministry of Jesus, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. What Paul was preaching, what Paul would be writing to the Romans and to us here today, was not something novel. It was found long ago, even before he penned these words. It was grounded in the Old Testament Scriptures, foretold by the prophets. And now we who are of faith are recipients of it. With a little bit of time we have left, I'm going to give you some application concerning this truth. How deeply, when you read your Bible, how deeply do you understand the gospel? Do you find yourself, as you read your Bible, even in the Old Testament Scriptures, Do you see Christ, a promise, type, shadow? The promises heading straight to Christ. And those realities explained in the New Testament that we've embraced by faith. Do you see it as a fulfillment of God's eternal purpose? Not as a plan B, but as the plan. As a fulfillment of God's promises. Again, Romans 1, verse 2. Which God, which He promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Let me give you some very practical application. As we learn to consider the gospel, the depth, the riches of it is found throughout our entire Bible. We're whole Bible Christians, right? (laughs) One, very practical application with this truth. Paul's words should remind us as he's establishing authority in sending this letter to the Roman churches and to us. We should learn here as God's people to trust God's faithfulness and word. Knowing that the gospel was foretold by the prophets long ago, their rival Jesus Christ ought to strengthen our trust and our faith and God's faithfulness. His plans and promises are unchanging, and they're reliable for us as His people. Again, remembering these opening, this opening section here of Paul's letter to the Romans, and then consider the opening sections of the Gospels, the four Gospels, and how they open up. And they all open up, either speaking of Christ from eternity, like John, or they speak of the promises of God, even Mary's song. They speak of the promise of the Messiah. And as you read through those pages, all of a sudden, you find these prophetic words, they just open up and erupt with a baby born. As we hear these words from the apostle, again, we are to learn here to trust God's faithfulness and promises. Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Isaiah 46.10, 
Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So let us grow as we read God's word, study it, see the depth of the gospel. Let us as God's people, let us grow in our trust in God's faithfulness. Secondly, we learn from our passage this morning, especially in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, of the consistency of the Bible, the, the unity of the Bible. The New Testament gospel was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Once you begin to understand that truth, and you understand that that is the purpose and plan that's moving forward in the Bible, you will have a better and well-rounded understanding and a fuller comprehension of reading the Bible, understanding its storyline, and its great redemptive plan found in Christ. Calvin. Calvin, commenting on verse 2, said this, quote, he wrote this, Christ came not on earth unexpectedly. Nor did he introduce a doctrine of a new kind and not heard of before inasmuch as he in his gospel too had been promised and expected from the beginning of the world. End quote. Isn't that wonderful? When you find passages in the Bible, for instance, 2 Corinthians 1.20, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in Him that is in Christ are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Calvin would write again, commenting on that verse. Listen to this. All, quote, here's Calvin, all the promises of God rest upon Christ alone as their support, end quote. Isn't that wonderful? I'll give you a few more. Three. Here in this passage this morning, we have, listen church, this is why we need to, as God's people, be in a verse-by-verse expositional preaching, stand firmly upon the trustworthiness of God's Word. Here in this passage, we have a great affirmation of biblical trustworthiness. It was foretold and it's fulfilled. Verse 2 to verse 3. We have wonderful theological words to describe the trustworthiness of the Bible. We have words like, even in our confession, sure, certain, sufficient, and then there's these other, these other words that you may find not only in our confession, but theologically, not only sure, certain, sufficient, but you have words like inspiration, breathed out by God. You remember 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. God who cannot err. God, the omnipotent one. God, the all-knowing one, has given us a word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We have words like inspiration. We have words that are more that come onto the scene later, but words like inerrancy. An inerrant word means we have a word that cannot err. It doesn't err. It doesn't contain errors. That is, it doesn't have internal conflict. Moses doesn't conflict with Galatians. It doesn't have external conflict. The truths of the Bible do not conflict with science and history. 
It's an inerrant word. But we have that one big word in our confession I love even more. We not only have an inspired word, an inerrant word, we have an infallible word, an infallible word. You know what that means? It cannot err. It cannot err because it's a word from God who cannot err. These, what we're seeing here in these verses, verses two and three from from that which was promised beforehand to its fulfillment in Christ. It's affirming the trustworthiness and the authority of, of the scriptures. It's reminding us that the Bible is God's inspired word. And therefore, we can rely and rest and obey with all resting in it by faith of the truth of its teachings entirely. And so we have this great affirmation of biblical trustworthiness. I'll bring up some other of these applications next week. And let me give you one more in closing as we move. We must be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within us. And when we come to passages like this, not only does it set forth the trustworthiness of God's Word, it does to the naysayers and the critics. It does empower our, our apologetic, our word to the world, our proclamation to the world, world our, our giving an answer to the world. As we grow in our understanding of the Bible and its truth, and, and let me say to you, as, a, as an expositor, as a preacher of the Bible, nothing has strengthened my faith through the years, like week after week, of expositing God's Word and seeing its truth and the depth of it and how it just runs through the Bible. But as we do this together as a congregation, as we grow and are familiar of how the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, it provides for us a strong and robust defense of the Christian faith as we engage others. We can speak of Christ in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We can speak of the authority of its word. And then when we come to passages in the Old Testament, whether it even speaks of Abraham, we can, we can speak of Christ. We're able to engage the world more effectively as His people are separated to the gospel, as ambassadors that speak of His word. I mean, this passage this morning, of one of many that we could consider, it reminds us of the wonderful gospel that all of God's people, true people, that have received His promise through all the ages. From Abraham to Paul to us here today. Paul writing to the Galatians, listen to this in Galatians 3 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 7. Therefore, know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. Verse 9, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel. Yes, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. 
And then verse 9, so then all those who are faith are blessed with believing Abraham. It's this gospel that Paul will tell us before we are finished through this section. Remember his wording? For in it the righteousness of God is found from faith to faith. That the Son of God came from eternity came into the world, born of a woman, lived a sinless life, kept the law of God that we, that we break, He kept. We are deserving of judgment. He is sinless. And the sinless Son of God went to the cross to bear the penalty that was due unto us. Death, judgment, hell. He died on the cross for our sins. He made atonement for our sins to make us at one with God by His death on the cross. And He died. He died, He was buried. The grave could not hold Him. The grave could not hold Him. The sinless Son of God, God raised Him from the dead. And now He's at the right-hand side of God on His throne, ruling and reigning as King, interceding for us as our priest. And with nail-scarred hands as the sacrifice redeemer for us. Let us praise God for this glorious gospel. He has saved us. If you're here this morning apart from Christ, you're not a Christian, Turn to this good news that you've heard. It is good news. Not by any work that you could do, any righteousness that you could put forth and set before God. No. But receiving it by faith, trusting and resting what God has provided and given. For by grace, the unmerited favor of God, are we saved from the judgment and wrath of God and brought into heaven through faith in Christ alone. Turn to Him and be saved. Let us pray. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, Warrenton, Virginia. If you live in Northern Virginia, please join us for worship this Sunday. For more information, please visit us online at covenantrbc.org.